0: I never got any money from you. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, No grace, Not really. Not yet. Welcome to Encounter 55, Year of the Humanoids. So, the subject for this episode is a book, or a research report, or whatever you want to call it, entitled 1973, Year of the Humanoids. It was compiled in May 1976 by a fellow named David Webb for the Center for UFO Studies, or QFOS as it's acronymed. This was the brainchild, this organization was the brainchild of J. Allen Hynek. Hynek, for those who don't know, was the Air Force's scientific consultant on Project Blue Book, about which there will be an episode at some point. Initially skeptical, Hynek eventually concluded that more of these weird, events were worthy of research than the Air Force might like to admit. With Blue Book being shut down in 1969, Hynek saw an opening for a civilian research organization with a little more scientific rigor than NICAP or the other organizations like APRO and eventually MUFON might have, and QFOS opened its doors in 1973. Heineck held the position of scientific director until his death in 1986, and the organization is still still out there. And their website has an amazing array of materials, such as 1973, Year of the Humanoids. And so among the many things that QFOS has done is sponsor the publication of reports like this, focusing on a trend or series of sightings or encounters in pretty exhaustive detail. Now, ensuring that this episode didn't turn into an audiobook was pretty challenging because there's so many good accounts in here. So we'd better get started. 1973 was, uh, I think the the precise term was, a heck of a year, uh, in terms not only of UFO sightings around the world, but also for sightings of and encounters with beings we can call humanoids, generally bipedal with a head and some limbs, although the shape of the head, limbs, torso, etc. could be variable. But generally, these are beings that, uh, that we could consider more human-like than not. In fall 1973, autumn, if you will, which is the period the book covers, people in the United States experienced huge numbers of strange encounters with some very bizarre beings. But the strangest reports from 1973 were of humanoid entities often seen in association with UFOs. I recorded 70 reports of this type during the five months from August through December 1973. Of these, 55 took place in the continental United States, 36 in October, and 7 on a single day, October 17th, with two more occurring on the night of October 16th. This represents the largest number of humanoid reports from one country since the famous French Wave of 1954. Save your tweets. We will be doing a French Wave of 1954 episode at some point. Don't worry. Year of the Humanoids isn't really a book with a beginning, middle, and end, or a record of an investigation. uh, A sort of narrative record of investigation like a lot of UFO books. It's not David Webb on the road talking to witnesses from Indiana to Australia. Rather, it's a coalition of careful documentation consisting of brief, sometimes very brief, narratives of these strange encounters. It also includes a section in which the events are encoded or tabulated in what Webb calls a computer-compatible format that would allow researchers and investigators to analyze data from hundreds of cases. Doing so would lead, they hoped, to a deeper understanding of these phenomenon. And the idea, and, and we take this for granted now, but back in the 1970s, this was not uh, a simple or easy or routine thing, to have narrative events broken down, entered into a database, and being able to you know potentially query these events and, and disaggregate them by location, by demographic information of the witness, of all kinds of ways, it's not going to lead to a solution. To the UFO question, but what a great tool for understanding the ways in which the phenomenon might seem to appear to different people at different places at different times. Now, this might seem to be more of the old ufological issue of collect case after case after case after case after case and put them In a filing cabinet, in this case a digital filing cabinet, but it's really more than that. It's moving beyond the collection of cases to a broad-scale analysis of these cases, which, again, is something that I think a lot of UFO organizations are still getting the hang of today. So Webb delineates in this report three types of cases, humanoid occupants of UFO craft appearing, Contactee reports, in which communication takes place, and the third is, in quotes, monster sightings. Webb explained that contactee-style reports were kept in the report, quote, "...unless a hoax seems possible." Monster, or anthropoid, uh, to use another one of Webb's words, Monster accounts were removed unless the monster was cited in conjunction with a UFO sighting. After all, it's the Center for UFO Studies, not the Center for Generic Weird Monster Studies. However, the anthropoid reports cannot, I feel, be ignored despite the strong emotional distaste that many researchers have for them. The large number of these reports during 1973 and their distribution both in time and geography seem to bear some relationship to the UFO wave itself. Strong emotional distaste. That phrase alone should give you an idea of the attitude toward anything weirder than lights in the sky that some researchers had. But Webb isn't one of them and calls for more studies in the correlation between UFO sightings and anthropoid or monster sightings. Abductions as we have come to know them, were becoming more of a thing as well during this time, with that actual term, abduction, also coming into wider usage. The most detailed information on occupants comes from those reports of a witness being abducted and taken aboard a UFO. The key to our understanding of the UFO phenomenon may lie in the study of well-documented abduction cases. I may be cheeky in saying this, but I think we're still waiting for that to pay off. So in the book, there is a map of late 1973's humanoid sightings, and you can see it as sort of the header image on the website uh, for this episode. It shows that the encounters were heavily weighted east of the Mississippi, with a a high number occurring in the southeastern United States. And as I said, the book compiles the data both in a narrative form, as well as a, quote, computer-compatible table of the basic data. The narratives are concise, which should allow us to take a look at some of the best ones, or at least ones that jumped out at me, and they run from August of 1973 through the end of the year. While the U.S. is the most well-represented location, there are some interesting cases from around the world as well. So, as an example of just how concise these narratives can be, we have this example from Exeter, New Hampshire. August 9th, Exeter, New Hampshire. A father and his son were driving along a main highway in the Exeter area when they saw a landed UFO alongside the highway. A humanoid was standing beside it. This was probably in the daytime. Probably in the daytime? I would think that would be the easiest part of the story to actually nail down. Uh, But in any case, there's no description of the craft, no description of the humanoid, and I've got to be honest, when I first read through this, I wondered why it was in there, and I was really hoping that the stories would get better. Then I remembered this wasn't intended to be an interesting book. It's meant to be an exhaustive account of reported humanoid sightings, and this, in strict technical terms, qualifies for that. Now this case from Durham, New Hampshire, is more like it. September 18th, Durham, New Hampshire. A loud thud was heard by a married couple outside their home between 2130 and 2145 hours. The man investigated and found three small circular glowing spots, greenish in hue, on the ground. He also heard garbled voices and electrical noises emanating from the top of a large tree in his yard. The spots were still glowing at 23.30 when he went to bed. Two UFO sightings occurred within three miles of their home on October 24th and November 8th. The garbled voices and electrical sounds kind of remind me of all the telephone-based shenanigans that we saw in the Mothman prophecies and also puts me in mind a little bit of the way that some UFO encounters mess with electrical and electronic systems. What's also interesting about this is that the witnesses to the humanoids were not, as far as I can tell from this account, witnesses to the UFO sightings that occurred within three miles of their home on Later dates, so here Webb is sort of connecting the humanoid sighting to the UFO sightings, but the hu- UFO sightings took place um, over um, over a month later. So I'm not sure if that's uh, a great uh, a great correlation. And I think it has to be said, there's no humanoid here. There's glowing spots, greenish in hue. And garbled voices. I suppose the voices could have been from a humanoid, but also, and this is uh, this is for all of you who enjoy the British TV references in these episodes, the the spots of light, sort of on the ground, uh, moving around. Maybe it reminds me. I just got done watching all of Sapphire and Steel, and in the first episode, the uh, the the enemy is represented by uh, by glowing lights. On the floor of a house, and it sort of reminded me of that. So, for the next example, we are uh, we are going to France. Here's a fun one from France. Late September or early October, Piverday, France. While en route to work, the witness's motorcycle misfired and stopped as a dazzling bright light appeared on the road ahead. As he approached, he saw it was a luminous ovoid object with smoke underneath, hovering just above the ground. "'A man suddenly appeared and came up to the witness, "'putting his left hand on the witness's shoulder "'and offering, quote, reassuring words. "'The man was about two meters tall and thin, "'wearing a uniform like aluminum, "'a large helmet rested on his shoulders "'with a snorkel-like tube on the right side. "'His face was, quote, like a human face "'covered with a nylon stocking, end quote, "'with slitted eyes. "'He carried something like a pistol in his right hand, "'pointed at the ground.' He asked the witness where he was going. He replied, to my job. The being then said he must return to the object and told the witness not to inspect it too closely. He entered it from beneath, and it rose vertically with a sound like a swarm of bees, and then moved off horizontally. The motorcycle then started normally. Okay, I think we can agree the most annoying thing about that story is the fact that we weren't told what the reassuring words were. What... Were the reassuring words, Mr. French person, very, very frustrating. But again, much like stories where we have, you know, electrical faults, we have a vehicle stopping. Although with the backfiring, it doesn't seem to be as much of an electrical thing, although it could be. So next, uh, this is from, from the United States again. We have a story with some features that would become much more prominent in the years to come. October, between Columbus and Mansfield, Ohio. While driving after midnight, a man saw a flashing light to his left, then right, then in front. It gained speed and disappeared ahead of his car. He lost conscious memory while driving at 70 miles per hour and regained consciousness driving at 85 to 90 miles an hour on the same highway. On arrival at his home in Cleveland, He discovered a lapse of time he could not account for of 55 minutes to an hour and 25 minutes. A series of disturbing psychic experiences had occurred to the witness before and after this time. In late winter of 1974-1975, the witness went to a psychologist in an attempt to recall the missing interval. Under regressive hypnosis, the witness saw himself turning off I-71, asking himself, Why am I doing this? And driving down a dark, narrow, tree-lined road, seeing three beings on the road, one with both arms and legs outstretched, forming the silhouette of an X. The other two were closer to his car. He next saw two sets of eyes ahead and a face forming and shimmering on his left. Each set of eyes was projected into his brain and out again. His next impression was of approaching a craft with a door on the upper side. He felt terror, but as he passed through the door, he felt relief. He next felt himself lying on a table and saw beings with a silvery metallic look. One was bending over, looking at his legs. A brightly lighted instrument was brought close to his head, hurting his eyes. Presently, he was out of the craft, standing and watching it lift off. It was black, outlined by a shimmering white light. Missing time, hypnotic regression, examining tables with bright lights shining down. We're going to see a lot more of this in the decade to come. And I've got to say, while a lot of these stories are sort of goofy and fun, this one unnerves me. I think it's a couple things. The biggest one is the idea of, of standing there, looking at two sets of eyes, and then on your left, a face forming and shimmering. Somehow this, this face coalescing out of the nothingness, out of the darkness, is, is troubling to me. Also, I've driven this stretch of I-71 at night, so there's that. I'm I'm sort of imagining myself somewhere between Columbus and Mansfield on I-71 and thinking this could have been me. But the image of driving down a dark road lined with trees and coming upon three figures, it's creepy, man. It's creepy. So here's a goofy one to balance that out. October 1st, Anthony Hill, Tennessee. Three teenagers saw a huge, hairy, robot-like creature that walked mechanically with its hands upraised. It had a large, round head. An egg-shaped UFO was also seen at the same time. This occurred during a thunderstorm. Imprints were later found. Yeah. Huge, hairy, robot-like creatures. More of this, please, ufology, especially if they're sort of walking around mechanically with their hands up in the air. Uh, like they just don't care. So yeah, we need more of this ufologists. We need fewer Defense Department whistleblowers. Unless they're hairy robots, then I'll allow it. We'll be covering, um, sort of moving along here, we will be covering the Pascagoula case in more detail in a future episode. But it's interesting to see how that now very famous event. And at the time, a a huge event is sort of reported in this encapsulated version as part of a much larger wave of events. October 11, Pascagoula, Mississippi. Two fishermen were taken on board a blue oblong UFO by three robot-like gray beings who emitted a buzzing sound. They had claw-like hands and rounded feet. Pointed noses and ears were noticed, but no eyes. Their legs seemed locked together and they floated over the ground. The men were examined on board by a detached eye like device. After their release, the UFO disappeared in an instant. One of the witnesses, Charles Hickson, subsequently reported three other incidents, one of which apparently involved the same beings. Two involved telepathic communication only and the transfer of information that was not to be disclosed. The first of these contacts was in December 1973 while Hickson was squirrel hunting. Like I said, we'll be looking at Pascagoula in more detail later on uh, because it is one of the sort of seminal abduction stories of the period. And it's it's another story that, that illustrates this weird sort of interstitial period where so many of these abduction tropes, we can call them, or cliches, if you want to be less generous, they're all falling into place, but there's still a great deal more variety. Here's another example from Utah. October 16th and 17th, Lehigh, Utah. A woman was abducted from her home, as well as possibly three of her children and a neighbor boy, and given a medical examination on board a craft. Carrying a machine of some sort, three beings lifted the woman from a couch and carried her by the arms. Her next memory was of a big, bright room with lots of lights and buttons and glass tubes containing liquid. She observed four or five humanoids on the craft, and at least two human beings. The humanoids did not communicate with her, were coldly efficient, and made her feel like a guinea pig. They were four to five feet tall, with head coverings, helmets, no noses, long, fish-like mouths, "'orange hands, gloves, with two or three big claws or fingers that opened like a clasp. "'They had large oval eyes that wrapped around the side of their head. "'The pupils were big, black, and round and moved a lot. "'Their suits were a fluorescent silvery and blue. "'The three beings in her home were described as wearing shiny, bright, white uniforms. "'During the exam, she was hooked up to a machine, probed with needles, "'given a blood pressure test and a gynecological exam.' The beings were able to read her mind. One of the humans was bald, about 55, and talked to her and helped during the exam. They gave her a shot to make her forget, then carried her out a door to be reunited with her children. The incident took 45 minutes to an hour. So the first thing that jumped out at me is that she was given a shot so she would forget, but she related the story later, and there's no mention of hypnosis. So either the shot was not effective, or it was maybe a short-term thing, or Webb forgot to mention hypnosis or something. I like the fact that the aliens were wearing shiny jumpsuits, but other than the shiny jumpsuits, uh, these these guys sound like grays. Four to five feet tall, no noses, cold, detached, clinical. The gloves are new. The colors of the uniforms are new. Uh, The fish-like mouths are interesting, as are the helmets. I also like, or I don't like it... I don't hate it, but I find it interesting. The presence of humans collaborating with aliens. Now, that's that's interesting, and it's great fodder for either of two of the big abduction theories of the 80s and 90s. First, the, the one that we're all sort of familiar with, the idea that the U.S. government is actively working with aliens. Or the second option, and this is one that we're going to have to explore in a little bit more detail down the road, that elements of the military or intelligence agencies were conducting experiments and the alien aspect is just sort of an implanted screen memory or cover story, that this is all some sort of updated MK ultra style thing and uh, the alien part of it is just sort of, you know, sort of placed over the actual human experience. Finally, for this section, I want to look at three independent accounts of what appear to be the same kind of creature in the same place, at the same span of time, in Hartford City, Indiana. Now, Hartford City is the county seat of Blackford County, and it isn't a big place. If we go by the 1970 census, in 1973 when this occurred, the population was around 8,500. State Highway 3 runs through there. It's about 20 miles from Muncie, and it's about the most nothing-happening burg in east-central Indiana. I've driven through it countless times on the way to and from college back in the day, and it always seemed to have far too many stoplights for a town its size. I also went on a ghost hunt there a few years back. Ghosts uh, didn't want to talk, which is usual when I'm around for some reason. Anyway, my reminiscences about Hartford City aside... Let's take a look at these stories. They're from October of 1973. October 22nd, Hartford City, Indiana. The first of a series of three independent observations of two silver-suited four-foot humanoids in this area. While driving home, Mrs. Debbie Carn saw them slowly cross the road in front of her. As she drove past them on the roadside, they made a loud noise and raised their arms as if to scare her. So they jumped out, basically, or slowly crossed the road, same difference, and shouted the alien equivalent of boo. Uh, that, is, that is outstanding. The second story, also from the night of the 22nd, provides a bit more detail. October 22nd, Hartford City, Indiana. About 15 minutes after the above encounter, the Donathans saw the same or a similar pair of beings on the road. They were described as bright silver Straight in form, with no features except for box-like feet. The pair moved in a clumsy, flopping manner as they tried to get off the road ahead of the approaching car. Mr. Donathan described this as a dancing effect. The next day, imprints were found in the field where the beings had last been seen." Box-like feet, with footprints the next day, shambling silver weirdos trying to get across the street. This is, this is great. Account three is listed as being on the 23rd of October. So I assume that Mr. Gary Platter, who we're going to hear from here or hear about here, saw our friends sometime after midnight. October 23rd, Hartford City, Indiana. Gary Platter got the best view of the creatures. About two hours after investigating the Donathan story, He was searching for the beings when he came across a line of small mammals crossing the road. Then he noticed a high-frequency sound and spotted, apparently, the same pair of beings in a plowed field 75 feet away. After a while, he turned his truck's spotlight on them. They turned their bodies toward him, forcing him to turn off his light because the glare from their suits was so great. They had egg-shaped heads with what looked like gas masks, with hoses running down to their chests. Their feet were square with a heel and seemed to provide motive power for slow jumping actions. On the final jump, they flew off, quote, like a helicopter in feet down position, end quote. What? I mean, what? Okay, cards on the table time. How can anyone possibly think cataloging weird objects bopping around the sky is more interesting than this? I mean, I know they're connected, but but come on. Their square feet provided motive power for being able to jump and then bounce up and fly off like a helicopter. This is, this is, I love this. I, I love this. The computer compatible table of data is interesting. Okay. I, yes, I've got to go back. Yes, there are accounts in here, if you've read this book, that you probably can't believe I didn't talk about, and um, I can't believe it either, but we have finite amounts of time, correct? So there's a link to this book in the show notes, as I'll remind you again later. There's all kinds of great stories, but I'm going to move on now. I'm sorry. So the computer-compatible table of data is interesting, but not really something that translates well into an audio description. If you're into data, and come on, who isn't, I encourage you to grab the book from that link. The third section of the book, after the brief narratives and the computerized tables, is a discussion of the abduction cases of late 1973. There were eight in total, with six of them occurring in October, five of which were in the United States. Webb responds to this finding with the following observation. These facts, taken at face value, imply that a systematic study of a human population sample and of a limited geographic area was made during the fall of 1973. Furthermore, it would appear that this type of bold behavior by the UFO entities is becoming more common. We're entering a new world. Although we're still a ways off from the abduction-saturated world of the 80s and 90s, we've got actual against-their-will kidnappings, the details of which are learned through hypnosis, which Webb states is becoming, quote, a standard procedure. It's a new enough phenomenon, actually, that Webb has to explain exactly what the difference is between an abduction and a contactee experience. I should emphasize that abduction cases are not necessarily also contactee cases. The controversial contactee case involves some form of intelligible two-way communication between the witnesses and the humanoids. Abduction of the witnesses does not always occur. Similarly, abductions do not always involve intelligible communication. The Pascagoula incident is a good case in point. More of our research efforts should be directed toward the abduction cases. The witness is taken aboard a craft and is with the alleged aliens for a prolonged period of time. If these cases are true, then a study of them will give us the best data on the nature of our visitors. For the sake of completeness, I chose to divide the abduction and contactee cases into two categories. The first involves those where the witness typically has repeated visitations, was given messages bearing philosophical and evangelical content, and sought publicity and financial gain from the experience. All others involving intelligible communication, but without the above attributes, fall into the second category. The former type is anathema to conservative researchers, but once again, if we accept well-documented, reliable abduction and contact these stories of the second type, then we must at least allow the possibility that some of the Adamski-type stories are true, but possibly garbled by overzealous witnesses. That seems to be a good explanation. And he uses the well-known cases of Betty and Barney Hill, Antonio Villas-Boas, and Herbert Shermer, who we'll probably discuss in the future, as archetypal abduction cases. Now, I know I don't have to tell you this, because as a listener to this program, you probably already know, but maybe you don't, so here's a reminder. Historical trends, even within a very narrow field such as ufology, don't follow the calendar, even if we sometimes pretend they do to make things more convenient to explain. Most narratives of the UFO experience, especially if they're written for a broad audience, just to keep things simple, make abductions an 80s and 90s thing. Heck, I did something similar a couple minutes ago. Outlier cases like the hills are treated as something a bit different. As far as sheer numbers are concerned, there's some sense to that. But I think that what makes the 70s so fascinating is that the decade was a bridge between the ufologies of the 60s and that of the 80s, but also had its own unique flavor. This was, to my mind at least, the high watermark of the approaches taken by writers like Jacques Vallée and John Keel. It was the decade that gave us in search of, the decade that gave us the Philadelphia experiment and the research behind, if not the publication of, the book The Roswell Incident. By the end of 1980, NICAP was dead, APRO was dying, and the landscape was changing rapidly. The remainder of this book goes into detail discussing the creatures described in various accounts, comparing their characteristics and perceived abilities as well. The book also provides a number of drawings of the various humanoids which you've seen if you follow our various social media sites, I encourage you to check out Saucer Life on Instagram for a few of my favorites. Humanoids, watch out for them. They may jump out at you, amble across the street, yell boo in their alien language, and then fly away like a helicopter. As I said, there's a link to the PDF of Year of the Humanoids in the show notes, courtesy of the CUFOS website at cufos.org. You can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show at saucerlife.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, or email us at thesaucerlife.com. You can subscribe to The Saucer Life wherever you find podcasts, and thanks to uh, those of you who've been leaving such nice reviews at those sites. The Saucer Life Encounter 55 is a production of Media LLC. Media, working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the humanoids are watching you.